The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. Get the inside track on 20 top business trends for 2020 from Joe Block. Joel's insights bring Wall Street to your street so you can profit from the inside in 2020. Just text the word TREND to 7200. That's 72000 and download your free copy today. Grab your phone and get the inside track on business trends that affect you and your business. Just text the word TREND to 72000 for your copy now. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. Why is it that so many business owners leave money on the table when selling their businesses? To answer that question, Dominic Rinaldi. Dominic, welcome to the show. Hey, Joel. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Hey, listen, I don't think anything bothers somebody more, whether uh, they're they're buying, selling, doing a, buying a car, it doesn't matter what they're doing, than leaving money on the table. So you see a lot of that? We do, unfortunately. Um, we see many owners of businesses not properly prepare for an exit from their business. And, and they definitely leave money on the table. And the interesting thing is an exit may come at a date of your choosing, and it may also come at a date that you didn't choose. And so <laughs> not running your business day in and day out for uh, a potential exit or succession is really a mistake. It's, it's typically somebody's largest asset. And if it's not their largest, it's in their top three. All right, wait, let's slow down because there's, there's a lot of concepts baked into what you just said. Number one, it may or may not come at the date of their choosing. So uh, that opens the door to being prepared all the time. Yep. Being prepared for a couple of years is hard enough, let alone being yes. prepared all the time. So number one, what does the preparation cycle look like to you? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. that's kind of a, an open end. So when I talk to clients, I really look at uh, three legs of a stool when it comes to preparation. Uh, the first leg is are you personally financially ready? And so and there's a lot there, but at its basic, it means what's the number that you need in order to go live the lifestyle that you want to go live after you sell the business, whether you sell the whole business or you recap the business and just sell a part of it, what's the number that you need in order to go do the next thing? And so in order to figure that out, you need to engage financial analyst or a wealth manager or somebody who can help you think through all of the questions that go into that. Is your burn rate going to stay the same? Is it going to go up? Is it going to come down? 
Do you have all of your estate planning documents in place so that you're keeping the largest percentage of the proceeds from a sale in your pocket? So that's the first leg of the stool. The second leg of the stool is, is your business ready for a a transition? And it's a big meaty topic, but there are value drivers of every business and there are core things that should be in place in order to maximize the value of the business and understanding the value drivers and understanding what it takes in order to transfer, easily transfer a business to a new owner at maximum value matters. It's going to make sure that you, you maximize that, that walk away. The third leg of the stool is around emotional readiness, knowing what it's going to take in order for you to walk away from that business and not feel any remorse. And I hear that there are surveys out there that that state that a large percentage of business owners are remorseful after they sell their businesses. And it has nothing to do with the compensation and the consideration that they received, but has everything to do with the fact that they didn't have the next thing to go do, whether it is start another business, another venture, or work into retirement. Well... (laughs) So that assumes that somebody's going to voluntarily uh, roll into this sort of situation, right? They, they sit down and they say, I'd like to move forward and I'd like to sell my company. Yep. But you also mentioned that there's an involuntary or there's a, uh, a when you're you know not a date of your choosing. Let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, these are usually unf- unfortunate circumstances, right? These are uh, things that you hadn't planned for or you hoped wouldn't happen, but are forcing you to exit your business or sell a portion of your business. Uh, and there are things like you're going through a divorce uh, or you're going through a partnership breakup or you go to the doctor and you get diagnosed with an illness and it's clear that you know running the business day in and day out is no longer your first priority. And there could be many other things that happen along the way that force you to have to potentially sell or exit and in some cases have to exit very quickly. So when that, when that happens, and, and a lot of times, you know, the rest of the family may or may not be involved in the business. If the family's involved, it, it probably is a little easier. But if no one's involved in the business, uh, what, what, what do you see happen? I mean, what, what, what situations transpire? Yeah, it's, it's very difficult uh, in those situations. Um, you have a couple of options at that point. You have to hope that you have uh, maybe some key employees that can step up and maybe buy the business. And what I find there more often than not is that key employees don't have the equity to really come in and and acquire the business from the owner or even the skill set potentially. And so if if that doesn't exist, then you have to think about uh, potentially taking it out to the marketplace and taking it out to a marketplace at a point in time when maybe you're not up for that or the you're in a position of weakness. And so it's going to be really difficult to to execute that plan. I had a situation and I I did an interview on my podcast where I talked to two sisters whose father had been diagnosed with brain cancer. Uh, One of the sisters sort of worked in the business. The other had nothing to do with the business and didn't even live near the business. And there was a five-year lag between the time that the father was diagnosed and he passed away. So they had five years to think through the transition and succession of that business. And what's really interesting in that interview was that uh, the owner of the business 
uh, took care of everything personally and buttoned up his personal uh, estate very well, but refused to to really do the things that were necessary to have an orderly transition and succession of the business and literally died. And, and the, the daughters had to pick up the pieces and didn't have a roadmap for how to, how to run that business. And the outcome was not good. We got the business sold for them, but the outcome was not good. And it was very stressful to the point where one of the sisters got sick because there was so much stress placed on them. That's a really bad situation. I, I, I heard that episode, by the way, that mm-hmm. that's the one that I had uh, listened to okay. uh, some time ago. And, uh, and I thought it was a compelling story. And, and it really points to the fact that, you know, number one, uh, I'm a professional investor, which, which makes me a professional negotiator. And, and, you know, when a professional negotiator smells blood, the sharks come out. Uh, did you notice that that happened in that situation? I mean, Absolutely. did people uh, bid low and try to take yeah. advantage? Absolutely. Uh, they knew once they heard the story and they could see how the business was run, running or not being run, you know, they put two and two together. And yes, um, that's a lot of what we had to deal with. And it was very hard as an intermediary to hold value for our client in what was clearly a situation um, that, you know, was distressed. Well, the other, the other thing, it's not only a cash uh, discount that people would be looking for. They might be looking for financing terms mm-hmm. that you wouldn't otherwise give. So, uh, you know, for example, why wouldn't the employees, uh, they may not have the equity ready to go, but uh, certainly you give them terms that might be favorable and, and gather a higher price. Right. But you, you, you also need an employee or somebody who can step up to the plate and run the company. Right. And so they had some very skilled employees who had been with the business for a very long period of time, but there wasn't somebody who was going to be the leader of the company. So even if the employees were able to take it down from a financial perspective, they then had uh, the additional responsibility of going out and find somebody that can run the business day in and day out because there wasn't anybody that was capable. So that company didn't have a number two. Didn't have a number two. Yeah. And the family wasn't prepared to be the number two and then step into the shoes. So they had to sell it to a third party. They tried. They tried, um, but quickly realized that they, they, they weren't up to the task which is yeah. why they ultimately decided to put the business on the market. Yeah. So let's shift gears. What are, you know, what are things that, um, that sellers can do and, you know, and we can talk buyers or sellers and, and you're an intermediary. So you see both sides, but uh, what, you know, what are things that sellers can do to maximize or optimize their, uh, their sale prices? Yeah, so I would, um, I would focus on the value drivers of a business and there are, many value drivers, but to hit on a few, uh, and probably one of the most important ones is as the owner of the business, are you the business? So does the business rely on you to make decisions to be there? Are you actually part of a functional process? Are you selling? And if you are, you should work to remove yourself from any of those daily activities and put people in place that are doing that because the more that uh, you can strategically, you know, from a strategic uh, vantage point, run the business and not be immersed in it day in and day out, the easier it's going to be to transfer to a new buyer uh, and the less risk there is for a new buyer because you're not a, a cog in the process day in and day out. So I'd say that that clearly is, is high on everybody's list as far as so, buyers go. So getting the, uh, getting the owner out of the middle of the circle, what about um, 
do you see a lot of uh, a lot of situations where the owner of these even even pretty good size, you know, 40, 50 million dollar businesses are sort of using these companies as a personal piggy bank and they're running a lot of personal stuff through? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's crazy what we see from a financial perspective, what people will put through the financials on their business. And, you know, it creates two problems, right? So one is the buyer now has to jump through hoops to really reconcile whether or not some of those expenses that are being run through the business are personal or are they business related. And sometimes it's not always clear. There's a lot of gray in some of that stuff. But the second, I think, unintended consequence that it creates is now the banks need to sift through that, right? Because buyer needs to take their, the, the, the business to a, to a bank and, and get a loan. And if there's all of this noise going on in the financials, the bank may not get comfortable with it. So the advice here to sellers is run a clean business, especially if you think you're going to be selling in the next couple of years. Run a clean business. It's going to make for an easier transaction, a faster transaction, which you want once you decide to sell. And it's going to allow the buyer to go get uh, maximum leverage with banks, which means you're probably going to walk away with much more at the closing table. You know, it seems like it's one of those uh, pay me now or pay me later situations. Mm-hmm. You're either going to pay the IRS now, or you're going to pay for it out of your uh, out of your multiple that comes in the uh, in the in the form of a, a sales price. Absolutely, that's absolutely yeah. right. And yeah. you know, you if you pay thirty five cents on the dollar or whatever your tax rate is, right? Whatever you pay, uh, if you recognize that revenue as profit, you're going to get multiples of that. So, would you rather pay, you know, thirty five cents or get three, four, five, six, seven, eight times that dollar that you recognized in profit? Um, you know, and sometimes it's it's a timing thing. But I, then, as soon as we talk about timing, we go back to sometimes it, timing is not in your control. Let's talk about multiples. Let's talk about sale prices. Um, what what's the market? First of all, it's a moving target. These these things change from time to time. I imagine uh, when you're helping companies to set pricing on sale, or if you're representing a buyer and you're looking at uh, you know what a fair price is, what give us some guidelines. Give us give us a little bit of the inside track. You know this show. Profit from the inside is all about strategies to give people the inside track. What's the inside track on pricing? Yeah, so look, AB, it's a it's a dangerous conversation to have because multiples are all over the map. Depends on the industry in, you're in, how your business is doing, who the prospective buyer might be for your business, whether or not they have accretive value, meaning there's synergies and they can get rid of costs when they acquire. So there's lots of things that go into multiples. But I've been doing this a long time, and I would tell you that right now is an incredible time. If you're an owner of a business and you're thinking about selling your business, multiples, from my perspective, are at an all-time high. Uh, And there are so many buyers for good assets because there's so much money out there looking for a home. Well, so I, I'm not done asking questions about sale price and, and multiples, mm-hmm. so I'm not going to let so, you off the hook just quite yet. That, uh, it right. sounds like you kind of want to get off the hook, but let's no, keep no, going for a minute. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, if somebody has a subscription type business, yeah, that's got to be worth more than a than a, a transactional type business. Absolutely, all day long. So you go back to the value drivers conversation. That's a value driver. How much of your revenue is one time? Do you have to you know get new revenue all the time? How much of it is a repeat? And then 
the other category is how much is recurring uh, in your subscription example. And how, you're gonna how, get much the more, highest, how much more is recurring worth than transactional? You know, you, you could get another turn, turn and a half of EBITDA, maybe even two by having a recurring revenue business. And, you know, we all look at software and, and, you know, software is sort of the outlier on the multiple range, but, you know, their multiples are crazy. Um, so if you're building a software SaaS-based business, your multiples can be, you know, much, much higher than somebody who's, you know, doing IT and it's, you know, repeat business, but there's no recurring model there. Yeah. How about service versus uh, manufacturing? Yeah, you know, so the nice thing about service is you generally can keep your cost, your variable cost down quite a bit um, and your in your fixed costs down. So we tend to see that especially business services uh, opportunities, um, their margins are much higher. Uh, but you have to peel back the onion here and, and you have to start asking questions like, well, how much of that revenue is attributable to one or two or three clients? Um, so are there any client concentrations? There? How easy is it to replicate the service that you're offering? Um, and so if it's easy to replicate, your, your multiples are going to go down. If the barriers to entry to what you're doing are high, your multiple is going to go up. So then you compare that to manufacturing, some of the same things apply, right? So we'll sell uh, some manufacturing businesses, maybe machine shop. Uh, and, and, you know, they have one or two clients that represent the lion's share of their business. Well, that multiple is going to be lower than a manufacturing company that's actually producing a product. So they're not a job shop. They're producing a product. The multiple there is going to go much higher. And then the other questions you have to ask there are, you know, well, what, what are the capital expenditures then to run that manufacturing business? You know, you have to keep putting a lot of cap capex in year uh, every year to uh, invest in new technologies and new equipment. So there's so many questions to be asking. So I wouldn't say that manufacturing is better than you know business services or any service. You have to look at each of them and and weigh the pros and cons. I mean, is it, it it sounds like it's uh, more of an art form than it is a science. You know, I say this to people all the time, Joel. Uh, valuing a business. There's a science and there's an art to it. The science is the numbers. They are what they are what they are. What did you report to the government? How are you managing? What, what, what's your balance sheet look like? The art, though, is all of these other things that we're talking about. So let me ask another thing. This might be a little sensitive. Uh, do you represent the price of the company uh, the same to everybody? Or do uh, certain people uh, uh, you know, get represented the price a little differently? Well, in our firm, uh, we either have a price on it and it gets that price gets represented to everybody in the market or we don't have a price on it uh, and we let the market uh, bring us offers. The reason, the reason I ask is, you know, you, you were talking about, you said accretive, you know, which, yeah. which is really important. In other words, yeah. that would be a strategic uh, buyer, yes. uh, somebody who is going to get some kind of an extra bump, a financial yeah. buyer being somebody that just invests for an 8% rate of return. A uh, strategic buyer being somebody that, that cares more about helping their other divisions than maybe mm -hmm. their their return on their capital investment, right? right. So uh, it would be worth more to that kind of company. So when you're doing your search, are you looking for strategic buyers and you price it that way? Or do you have a couple different prices that you're willing to consider depending on who comes along? Yeah, so it's a great question. If we take in an engagement, we think that... Uh, 
the buyer is likely to be a strategic. We're going to build a plan and we're going to go out into the marketplace and we're going to go after strategics or we're going to go after private equity groups that have portfolio companies in that in that sector. Uh, and chances are we're not going to be giving them a price. We're going to bring we're going to bring the business out to the marketplace. We're going to share all the information and then we'll have a call date at some point in time. And anybody who's interested can come in with a you know indication of interest. Uh, so we'll we'll have that strategy set with the owner of the business right up front, and that's probably the path that we'll follow. It's rare that we'll do that and try to create a larger market that may not include strategics because it get it gets very hard for anybody who isn't a strategic to really bid on that business. They just don't have the same advantage. Okay. All right, good. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I was uh, going to say when we were talking about the piggy bank concept uh, a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. uh, we kind of jumped to something else. But, uh, you know, there have been a handful of times I've looked at some companies, I've given people some advice, although I'm not in your business, but I, I, people have asked me for some input on this. Um, and I've always told people, listen, if you know you're going to sell your company three years before, uh, you know, stop playing games, stop fooling around, stop doing all the silliness of running your family activities through. Uh, start paying the tax and clean up your act. And it takes about three years, three cycle, three tax cycles to kind of get all that stuff washed off your uh, balance sheet and washed off your, uh, you know, out of your books. Um, do you, do you counsel people on that sort of thing? I mean, does that sound like the right, the right idea? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's great advice. Um, we'll have people come in and, and we'll do an opinion of value for them. And um, a small percentage are ready to go to marketplace today. Uh, I'd say probably less than 30% are actually ready to go to the marketplace. So when they're not, we're talking to them about the things that they should be doing to hit the mark that they need, Uh, whether that's cleaning up their financials, uh, growing the business in some way, you know, maybe through acquisition, uh, removing themselves from the operation, getting some key employees to come in. So yes, we're absolutely doing doing that with clients. Yeah, how many of the buyers or how many of the people that you deal with are professional investors compared to people who really don't know exactly how to smell blood the same way a professional investor does? In other words, if I saw a financial statement that had all sorts of garbage in it, mm-hmm. uh, I would know that this is going to sell for a, for a lower price and I would act accordingly. Uh, but, you know, not everybody knows that. I mean, that that is kind of the inside track on buying, right? I mean, right. there are certain cues that people who are on the inside of the transaction that have done this over and over again have a sense about. How many of these guys are professionals and how many people are other family businesses that just want to buy another family business? Yeah. So there's two sides to our business. We have a buy side practice where we represent buyers in the marketplace who want to acquire uh, something. Uh, those buyers are largely professional buyers. They're either strategics or private equity groups, and we're representing them in the marketplace. And if they're not professional, they're paying for our advice. And so we're giving them all of that information. If a buyer comes in and is just looking at one of our assets, I'd say probably 30% of the time they're professional, and the remainder of the time, you know, they haven't done an acquisition before. It's the first time that they're doing one, and they may or may not have the experience. So, do they have uh, those those companies? Uh, you know, and many companies have never been through this cycle before. 
Um, I mean, granted, they, they probably count on you to uh, help them assemble a file or whatever you help them do. But at the end of the day, it's their responsibility to make a decision, get their attorney, their accountant, their team, whoever it's going to be. Uh, how do they do? I mean, do a lot of them do figure it out pretty well or you, you see a lot of mistakes get made? So this is where advisors make all the difference. Uh, when we represent a sell-side client, we can't advise the buyer in that transaction. We'll give them whatever they ask for within reason and whatever the client is comfortable giving them, but we can't advise them. But one of the things we do tell them at the very outset is go surround yourself with really good advisors, M&A advisors, because you haven't done this before and having good advice will make all the difference for you. So go get an attorney who's done lots of M&A transactions. Go find an accounting firm who really understands M&A and tax law as it relates to M&A. Some heed that advice and some don't. Yeah. Are most of the transactions that you see, do you see a lot of stock sales or do you see a lot of uh, asset sales? Uh, you know, I, I'd say it's majority asset uh, asset sales. Um, we do have stock transactions and it depends, right? Sometimes a stock sale is warranted. If there are assets in the business that can't be easily transferred, what I mean by that, for example, is uh, maybe there are client contracts that without buying the stock, you can't easily transfer that in the business. So in that case, you, a client might look at a stock transaction. But in most cases, people want to do asset transactions. Uh, buyers want to do asset transactions. One, they don't want the liability. Uh, that was existing in that business prior to them taking over. And the second thing is they want the step up uh, in the basis between the depreciated assets and what they're buying those assets for, right? So you can't do that in a stock transaction, but you can do it in an asset transaction. Which is exactly the reason that the seller wants to sell uh, the stock. (laughs) Exactly right. Exactly exactly, right. They have the exact opposite incentive, right? You know, so... Mm -hmm. That's a right. tough situation. That's Have you right. seen situations uh, related to the way employees are treated, underfunded pensions, being where employees get left holding the bag as a result of some of these? If it's an asset sale, the employees don't come with. Have you seen that? I, I, I don't see a lot of that. I really don't. I mean, when you look at a business, it's pretty rare uh, in operating businesses where that buyer doesn't need those employees. Now, maybe they don't need all of them. But there's a lot of knowledge and experience and client history and vendor history. And, buy, and that, that's a lot of what the buyer is buying. And my perspective on this is the clients are very important when you're, when you're buying something. But I think the employees are more important. They're the ones that are making it operate day in and day out. And so it's pretty rare that I see someone come in and make wholesale changes. Now, you touch upon something different, though, also in regards to pensions. You know, that's a whole different kettle of fish when it comes to pensions, right? And what, what's going on there? You want to make a comment about it? or? Uh... Well, so, you know, I'm here in Chicago, and we've got a lot of pension issues uh, in my backyard. And so I see it every day where companies are part of a, a union pension, and that pension may be underfunded. And this creates a real issue when it comes time to sell because the new buyer doesn't want to take on that, that liability, right? And the number, the unfunded portion uh, of that pension fund for that company might be a number that makes a sale almost impossible uh, in some cases. So what we're seeing more and more of is buyers coming in and saying, listen, I will keep the union 
but we're not going to keep the pension. And you, Mr. Seller, need to pay off whatever the liability is. We'll keep the union and then we'll offer a 401k to the employees going forward, but no more union pension because nobody wants to have that potential liability that's sitting out there. So how are the unions dealing with that? I mean, the unions must be, uh, be pretty upset because well, the, uh, you know, the union pensions are a lot more favorable in a 401k. Yeah, of, co- of course. Um, you know, and so it's, it's a hard pill to swallow. Sometimes the pension, these, these pensions, uh, these unions are, are playing ball and sometimes they're not. I had a client two years ago that had an unfunded, their, their portion of the unfunded pension liability was greater than the value of their business. The, the union wouldn't negotiate with them. And as a result, my client just went BK closed up shop, went BK, called it a day. And, and that didn't help anybody because now all those employees lost their jobs. Uh, the union didn't at least get something, you know, to attribute to the pension. And so I can't see how that was a good outcome for anybody, but they wouldn't play ball. Yeah. That's a lose, lose deal all the way around. But what you're saying is that there's a third party now that needs to come to the table and approve the transaction. Um, The, the union. Yeah. Well, if it's a union pension, yes. Right. If it's an internal pension, no. But if it's a union pension, yes. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Interesting. Give us an example of something that you've seen happen. You know, what's a strange thing you've seen happen? Something very, very unusual, a very irregular situation. You know, this goes back a bit and we don't typically have a public private transactions, but a while back we had a public company come in and make an offer on a privately held company and nice transaction for our clients. It was going to be a roll up uh, scenario for the, for the public company and things were going great. And we were about two weeks away from closing. And uh, I got a phone call from the acquirer saying that they had received an sec notice that my clients had actually bought the stock of the public company. Uh, in advance of the transaction being consummated. That's insider trading. You can't do that. Yeah. And, um, and so needless to say, I, I, I had to get my clients and their attorney. <laughs> we had to unravel, uh, you know, those, those stock purchases, uh, get back to an equilibrium, and then the deal <laughs> ultimately went through. Thankfully, <laughs> Thankfully, somebody caught it before the transaction went through. But, you know, look, my, my, my clients, whether they weren't, I, they had no ill intentions. You know, they, they, they didn't. They were just folks that didn't understand maybe all the legalities of doing no, listen, that. They, they just thought they were being extra smart. You know, they, it, it's really what it came they, down they to. They were going to double dip. They, they, they weren't know. professional investors in any way. <laughs> they weren't, you know, doing this on purpose. But it, thankfully, it all worked out. But that was pretty strange. That that was a couple of weeks delay. It was a couple of weeks delay to unravel everything and get the SEC calmed down. And I'll tell you, know. you what, I'll tell you what's amazing is that the SEC has their finger on the pulse so well that they could know that in advance. Well, there. So what was it? Your your the uh, the acquirer, the public company, made a filing saying, "Of course, exactly, we're be right. doing this, right?" Exactly. And then they go through the stock register and they look for all the transactions. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Isn't so it's that, pretty easy to uh, catch if it's, uh, if, and that was, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's um, amazing. Um, now your practice, so you're in Chicago. Cool. Uh, do you work nationally or are you, uh, you pretty much restricted to your territory? 
No, no, we, 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 work, we work nationally. In fact, we have some international clients. Right now, we represent two clients out of Singapore uh, that have retained us to acquire businesses here in the U.S. Uh, on the buy side. And on the sell side, we're opportunistic. I mean, we largely do deals in our backyard in the, you know, in the Midwest, but uh, we'll, we'll do deals wherever it makes sense. Hey, tell me, uh, how does compensation work? How do you guys get paid? You know, so on the sell side, um, we're going to get some, you know, upfront retainer, and then we're going to get a commission uh, uh, based on a percentage of whatever the business sells for. And, you know, that is all over the map, depending on the size of the business and the complexity of the business. Um, and we'll usually deduct our up, any upfront advance retainer against the commission when the business sells. And on the buy side, it works largely the same way. We'll take a retainer. Sometimes we take monthly retainers, depending on the complexity of, of, the, of the transaction and what they're looking for us to do, and then a commission upon uh, an acquisition. You guys use a Lehman formula or you use a flat, a flat scale or how does, how does it tend to work? It, it, we use both. Um, we, it, it just sort of depends on the size and complexity of the business. I try to make things simple and have a straight flat fee if we can do that um, rather than, you know, have a, have a sliding scale. But smaller businesses, we're going to have a sliding scale. Larger businesses, we're probably going to have a, you know, a, a set number. And what just just give us the, the ballpark of the range. I mean, let's say a company is uh, in, the, in the 50 million plus range. What's, yeah, we're gonna, what, we're, we're gonna we're gonna be low to middle single digits on something like that. So what does that mean? Five? Yeah, three three to five. Uh, you know, somewhere in that range. Three to five points, and then yeah. a smaller company will be more. Oh yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, you know, five to ten, potentially. Yeah, potentially. Yeah, um, and you guys are regulated by the SEC, right? Finra or SEC? Do you, do you operate under a license? We're not. We're not. We're licensed in the state of Illinois, but we're not operated under Finra. Um, but you're not. Yeah, because you know we don't really. Most of our transactions are asset transactions, uh, and anything that we're doing that's a that's a stock transaction is you know pretty pretty small transaction. So what what agency do you operate under? The uh, Department of Real Estate in your state? Secretary of State. Secretary, Secretary of State. Secretary of State, yeah. Because yep. in California, it's uh, it's either, I, I think a lot of these guys are, uh, the investment bankers are, uh, I'm talking about even the guys who do the smaller transactions, not the big ones. Yeah. Uh, there's this, I think, Series 79 or something is what I always have understood because uh, I'm not yeah, licensed. I, I'm, I, I'm not completely up to speed on the California laws. Yeah, okay. Uh, some of them even have to register, I know, though, under the real estate. Um, yeah, right. Or, because be because a lot of those transactions are, are real estate transactions. The biggest asset for a lot of the smaller deals, and they're dealing right. doing stuff that's under five million. They're doing very small deals. Right. But the majority of the uh, assets are really leases and 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 yeah. real estate. Uh, correct. Correct. Assets. Yeah. yeah. So and we'll that, do real estate part. too. Um, and we have we have uh, um, a realtor here on staff. Um, so if the real estate is with the business, we'll do both. We don't do it in all the states, but certainly in our backyard, we'll do it. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, Dominic, you've been an awesome guest. You've really, uh, I think you've kind of shared the inside track on on how a lot of these transactions work and what it is. It's, you know, listen, you can't put your finger on it exactly because every situation is facts and circumstances for sure. But, uh, but you know, listen, you've, you've delivered uh, on our promise of profit from the inside, which is to deliver uh, strategies with, uh, to give our, our listeners the inside track. And I appreciate you doing that. Well, Joel, I appreciate you having me and I think you have a great show. I, uh, I really enjoy listening to it. Well, good. Well, listen, man, thank you very much. And uh, let's stay in touch. Sounds great. Thank you.
You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the Inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Get the inside track on 20 top business trends for 2020 from Joel Block. Joel's insights bring Wall Street to your street so you can profit from the inside in 2020. Just text the word TREND to 72000. That's 72000 and download your free copy today. Grab your phone and get the inside track on business trends that affect you and your business. Just text the word TREND to 72000 for your copy now. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.